Lord, we thank you that you are kind to us. We thank you that sometimes you can blow wind through an iron door. We praise you. Uh, I just want to say the, the church that you are a part of here, if you are a part of this church, this is literally like a river of uh, Pishon. If you've read Genesis chapter 2, you see there's a river called Pishon where gold is found. Yes. Uh, that river is here. Uh, I feels and I can sense revival in the air, life in the air. Uh, it's just each time I come, it's, it's just increasing and increasing. You guys probably can't tell because you're like the lobster that's inside of the, the hot water. He doesn't even know, you know, but I haven't been here in about a year and it has just increased all the more. It's just an ever-increasing flow of the river. Gold is found here. I, I, I just want to commend you guys and say you have chosen wisely to be a part of such an atmosphere. It will change the course of your life by consistently giving yourself to such a reverence and entertainment of the presence of Jesus Christ. So I just want to honor you guys, love you guys so much. It is a joy to be a part of this with you guys. Uh, Praise God. I feel the glory of the Lord. I don't even know what to do right now. Let us pray. Jesus, we're here because you're glorious. We've gathered in your name and we have lifted our hearts and we lift our eyes and now we lift our minds to set them upon you. Oh Lord, make us like John who puts his head upon the chest of Christ. He, he puts his mind upon the breast of Christ. Oh Lord, help us today to see you. Help us love you with all of our minds, with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, with all of our strength. Oh, Holy Spirit, thank you for grace. Oh, one drop of grace is more noble than all the angels, praise God. We worship you. We give you glory and honor. We praise you, Lord. Take us to the pinnacle above with you, my love, where all others fall off and our hearts become soft and our minds are solved and our wills are dissolved. Oh, take us up higher to be with you above our plans and concerns and needs, desires, preparations and dreams, above giftings and callings and streams, above thinking on all lower themes. Take us up, Lord, and let us see your face shine, I pray. Blind us, Lord, in your precious name. Amen and amen. amen. Charles Spurgeon said, if you leave Christ out, you've left the sun out of the day, the moon out of the night. You've left the waters out of the sea and the floods out of the river. You have left the harvest out of the year and the soul out of the body. You have left joy out of heaven and you've robbed all of its all. There is no gospel worth thinking of, less worth proclaiming. If Jesus be forgotten, we must have Jesus as the alpha and the omega of all of our ministries. He wrote also, he says, a sermon without Christ as its beginning, middle, and end is a mistake in conception and a crime in execution. It is Jesus that we must preach. It is Jesus that has all of our attention. Today, we have lifted him up in our hearts and we have felt his nearness. Oh, when you gather in his name, there he is in your midst, two of us touching, agreeing, anything we ask, Jesus be exalted. Praise God. Turn to Song of Solomon chapter 5. Everybody says to me, well, I say everybody, people come up to me and ask me why I preach on the same thing all the time. I cannot get away from Jesus Christ. I just am, I'm not interested in anything else. Are you guys? I've been on, in my, my Christian life, I've been on different roads and different interests and different fads. But the reality is all of them fade and they dry out really quick. They're, they're really cool for a little while. And then all of a sudden they just, they're empty. They can't feed the soul anymore. Oh, but Christ, Christ is all things in one. He has given to us absolute and total satisfaction in his own person. He doesn't even want to just give you deliverance. He wants to be your deliverance. He wants to tie himself together with you. Oh, I was thinking in Song of Solomon, the scripture says, Oh, come and gaze upon Solomon, 
who wears a crown that his mother put on his head the day that he was married and the day of his gladness. It just points to something in my heart, and it is that Jesus Christ is the heavenly Solomon. And we come to gaze upon him who loves to wear a crown that symbolizes his marriage to us, the day of his gladness. Praise God. You know what? Keep your finger there in Song of Solomon. I want to show you something. Matthew chapter 12. Matthew 12 writes, uh, there's this section that's really incredible. It's the last part of the 42nd verse. It says, behold, (laughs) something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus says something greater than Solomon is here. He actually is saying here that when Solomon was so endowed with wisdom, the whole world came to listen to him speak. He, he, He had such a quickening of divine wisdom that... Arrogant kings rose from their thrones and came from miles to be able to subject themselves to his seminar. This is who Solomon is. And Jesus even says, the queen of the south came just to listen to the wisdom that Solomon has. And she will testify against you because you have not believed someone who's greater than Solomon. So Jesus is connecting himself with Solomon in some way. Is that non-negotiable? I don't think that's negotiable at all because he has shown us he's better than Solomon. He's a higher wisdom than Solomon. And I point at that to say, one of the things that I felt the Lord really speak to my heart about you guys here is this, that Christ builds his house. The scripture says, unless the Lord builds the house, They that labor, they labor in vain. So isn't that interesting? God has to build the house. Everything must be from him, to him, and through him. Right? So, you know, keep your finger in Song of Solomon. Go over to 1 Kings chapter 6. This is Solomon, okay? Uh, Speaking of this incredible building of the house. Song of Solomon, or, sorry, keep your finger in Song of Solomon. Go to 1 Kings chapter 6. Someone greater than Solomon is here, and it's Jesus. Look at this. In verse 2, it says this. The house which King Solomon built for the Lord. Stop right there. The house which King Solomon Built for the Lord. He is a shadow of the one who's greater than him, Jesus. He he is as inferior to Christ as your shadow is to your person. He is only an image of something that was so much greater coming. King Solomon builds a house for the Lord as a type and shadow of Jesus who builds a house unto the Lord. The the scripture says that we are living stones. Jesus is building a habitation for his father. The scripture says that at the end, Jesus, when he's rectified everything, got everything right, he's going to give it to his father. All of this stuff that we see Jesus doing in the world today by the sending of his own spirit is all building a house for his father. He's the greater Solomon. Now think about this, Solomon in chapter 3 here, he is, has so much wisdom endowed upon him, right? He asks God for wisdom to be able to rule. God is pleased with this. He gives him wisdom that's unparalleled in the planet until Jesus comes, right? Now check this out. If Solomon represents wisdom, his name means peace. And even in the New Testament, Jesus is talking about the lilies of the field and how they're clothed. And he says, even uh, these, these lilies are clothed. Even Solomon in all of his splendor wasn't arrayed like these. So you have three things I want to point out about Solomon that are actually pointing to some things about the greater Solomon, the heavenly Solomon, Jesus. First, wisdom. Second, peace. Third, loveliness. These three things are the person that builds God's house. You say, okay, I don't, I don't really understand what you're trying to say. Okay, the more that we let Jesus be unto us wisdom, as Paul likes to say, 
The more we let Jesus be unto us wisdom, the less we'll try to figure things out. We'll just let him be our wisdom. If, if he hasn't yet told me he's wiser than I, I subject myself to whenever he chooses to tell me whatever he wants to tell me, my eyes are on him. That's wisdom. That's how God builds his house. Which shows you the opposite is true. The more you try to finagle and put, manipulate, twist, and try to make things happen, you are not allowing Christ to be wisdom because you're employing your own wisdom and you obstruct yourself being a part of that building. The second thing is Solomon means peace. Now, peace is not, peace is not some side issue. Peace is something so important. The scriptures talk about peace with God and the peace of God. The two sides of this wonderful coin called peace. Now, peace is not even something that you can just say it's kind of like part of the issue. Peace with God is the issue. Mankind rebelled and lost peace with God. Jesus came and restored peace with God. And because you have peace with God, you can receive the peace that God is. And you say, Eric, what's the significance of peace? Okay, listen to this. Paul connects peace to the crushing of Satan. He says, may the God of peace soon crush Satan under your feet. How many things could he say about Jesus? He say, or God, God of power, God of whatever you want to fill in any of his attributes. The one that's picked for the crushing of the devil in your life is peace. May the God of peace crush Satan. Now, here's another one. In Thessalonians, Paul talks about this thing called sanctification. How many know that we love sanctification? Listen, the more you allow the work of sanctification to happen in your life, the happier you're going to be. Because he's pulling you out of yourself and into himself. Sanctification is the leaving of self and going into God. It's the happiest thing in the world. And and, and then like me and John were saying yesterday, uh, it's so funny how you think you're completely sanctified and then God gives you a little bit more light. And you're like, oh, snap, I'm going to give more to you. And then you think you've given everything. And then he says, let me just, he says, you know what? You're doing real good. Let me give you a little bit more light. And then he gives you more light. And you're like, oh, Lord, there's so much here. And then you say, Lord, here I am. And this, this is how he brings you out of yourself and into himself. And he increases peace. Peace permeates every faculty of your being. It permeates your mind. It affects the way that you see other people and the way that you make decisions. Peace is very important. So he says this, may the God of peace himself sanctify you, Holy Spirit, soul, and body. So if you want sanctification in your life, it's connected to this attribute of God, peace. I'm saying this to say God builds his house in these three ways that we see in the heavenly Solomon. Wisdom, peace, praise God, peace. The fruit and result of the spirit is love, joy, peace. peace. You know, my wife and I, we get so upset when we hear people bash feelings because you can't get away from them in the Bible. They're everywhere. You, you just read one of, pick, a, pick an epistle, pick any epistle, and see if Paul doesn't actually speak so much about the newness of life that there is and new feelings and emotions that you have with this implanted new faculty in your being called your spirit man. Yeah, we're not ruled by our emotions that we had in the past. We have new ones. You know, we're not led by our old desires. The scripture says he takes out the heart of stone and now he gives you a heart of flesh. He took out the stony, dark feelings and emotions that we don't follow and he put in new ones to follow. Praise God. So peace. How many of you are interested in a peace that you cannot feel? Anybody? Anybody want that peace? Anybody want theological peace? I have theological peace. He's in turmoil. The guy's pulling his hair out. He's going to commit suicide, and there he is. But I have theological peace. This is, this is not what is promised to us. We're promised Christ, who is the prince of peace, to set up his home on the inside of our bodies and let that peace permeate the entirety of your being. And by this, he'll crush the devil and sanctify you. Praise God. 
peace is very important. And then lastly, the other one is it says, even Solomon and all of his splendor are not arrayed like one of these. Solomon, the heavenly Solomon, the beauty of Jesus takes all the attention. This is how God builds his house. Wisdom, peace, and being completely enamored with the beauty and majesty of Jesus. Praise God. Praise God. So right there, look at that. In, in chapter 6, you see that Solomon built his house. But I want to show you something even more interesting. Check out verse, this is crazy. Check out verse 7. It says, the house, listen to this, while it was being built. It says, was built of stone prepared at the quarry, and there was neither hammer nor axe nor any iron tool heard in the house while it was being built. That's incredible. It shows me something about how God builds his house. He builds it with internal quietness. You, you want to know something that's even more interesting? In Psalm 74, there is a, 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 in the Psalm, it starts talking about when the house of God was torn down. And it says specifically, you can look at it, Psalm 74, verse 5 and 7. It says that with loud voices and the sound of hammer and saw, they tore down the house of the Lord. So you see, God builds with inward quietness. The devil tears you down with inward noise. So this is what the, the heavenly Solomon does. He puts quietness on the inside. Can I just point out one more thing here that's crazy? What the, while Solomon is building the house, listen to this. Solomon overlays absolutely everything with gold. Why, why do you think he's doing that? Well, he's seen the Ark of the Covenant. So he's basically overlaying everything in God's house with the same shimmer and shine as the presence of God. This is how God builds his house with the wisdom of Christ, the peace of Christ, the loveliness of Christ, internal quietness of Christ, and he overlays everything with the presence of Christ. To me, that is just amazing. And I feel like that is what God is doing in this place. As you worship and honor and put to the highest place, the heavenly Solomon, he is building you to a habitation. Even though you already are, if, if you know anything about God, what you are, he makes you more of what you are. <laughs> He just continually does this wonderful thing so that his work is like there's a story of a little boy who walks in to see a potter and the potter's making this vessel and the boy sees the vessel in process and he says, what is that? And the potter says, well, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a vase, it's a vase. And then he says to him, he says, oh, it's, it's, it's ugly. <laughs> and then he says, no, it's perfect perfect just where it needs to be then the boy looks at all the ones that are around and he says no those are perfect then he says no 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 those are finished so he says it's perfect right now for what it needs to be right now it's not finished but it's perfect and this is how Jesus sees you you are so perfect to him right where you are he's he's molding you and forming you and fashioning you he says you're so perfect you're not done by any means but you're perfect right where you are. And I enjoy the process. I enjoy the process of working through these issues that you have in your mind. I, I, I want to walk with you through these things that you have in your heart. I, I desire to be involved intimately with what you have going on on your inside. Something I've been learning recently is that God uses brothers in your life to, to really strengthen you and speak grace into your heart. This is so important. But there's another side of brothers or people that we need. And it's Judas. You need, and I need Judas. Because he will bring you to the cross. 
maybe you've had somebody in your life that is just vexing to you. They're planted by God. And now you see them differently. You see them as this person is the work of God. Chisel and hammer in my soul, if you will. He's rubbing off the external edges by putting somebody perfectly prepared to work me in the areas that I need work. And you can submit to that and say, this person is in essence leading me to a cross I otherwise would never have found. Which will bring me to a resurrection I would have never known. So to me, I'm learning this. And I'm, I'm, I'm learning it and growing in it, and I, and I love it. So, okay, so Song of Solomon, is this okay if I keep going? Song of Solomon, chapter five. Let's just look at this real quick. We won't go too much longer. Oh, it's funny, as I was turning to Song of Solomon, I stopped at Job when Job says, <laughs> Job says, may I not lift my head in righteousness, because if I do, you'll hunt me like a lion. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? It's like sometimes we get so on ourselves and how good we've been. We haven't done a certain sin in a long time. And we get raised up and God hunts you like a lion. Mm -mm. You're not raising your head up in here. <laughs> Praise God. So Song of Solomon chapter 5. We have what the Puritans would call the summary statement. Uh, so when a Puritan would preach... What they would do is they would give their whole lesson, point one, point two, point three, point five, whatever how many points there are. But what a lot of the other Puritans would do is they would arrive late at the message because if they got the summary, in the summary, they got the whole thing. So they didn't really have to be there for point one through five. If they just got there for the summary, they can get the whole thing in a nutshell. And so here we have in Song of Solomon, we have a beautiful description of the loveliness of Jesus, the heavenly Solomon. And there is a final, funnel statement at the end in which you receive everything that she's already said in a nutshell. And it is right here in verse 16. He is wholly desirable. He is completely desirable. This means something. It means... Oh, oh, all right, here's a, here's a translation for you that will help you understand. So one of the translations specifically says this. It says that he is altogether lovely. That's the King James version of the Bible. Uh, another version says he is desirable in every way. That's the New Living Translation. And the English standard says he is altogether desirable. But my favorite one is that King James. He is altogether lovely. The word altogether is important to remember because it means entirely, in totality. In other words, every single thing about him is lovely. So he is altogether lovely. You say, what does lovely mean? Lovely means, and this is very important, especially for first love. First love, which is what the conference was about, right? Lovely means able to excite love. He is, everything about him excites love. To see him rightly is to love him only. He is entirely enticing <laughs> he pulls everything in you with every facet of him anything you see about him pulls you into love for him so you say man eric i've been really struggling with my love for the lord i don't really sense the love like i used to sense it's because your vision is dim your, your sight of the Lord has been, has been dimmed in some way. See, the devil doesn't care really what you know. He cares what you see. That's why the Bible says that the, 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 the God of this world blinds the mind. He doesn't want you to see. If you see Jesus rightly, you are finished. And if you consistently see him rightly, you will consistently be formed into his image. You know, there's only two places where image of Jesus are put together. 
It's in Romans 8.29, which is God predestined you to be conformed to the image of the Son. That's God's purpose for you. But then in 2 Corinthians 4, what does it say? It says that beholding as in a mirror the glory of God were being transformed into the same image. So you see, his goal is that you would become like Jesus, and the means by which you become like Jesus is looking at Jesus. So the more you look unto the Lord, turn your eye to the Lord, the more he transforms you on the inside. Do you guys remember what Jacob did when he saw the ladder and angels ascending and descending? He laid his head upon a rock and his eyes opened. Jesus is the rock of your salvation. When you apply your mind to who he is, the eyes open and you begin to see the activity of heaven. But above all of the activity of heaven, the scripture says in Genesis 28, the Lord stood above them all. Jesus above everything, all the activity that God is doing. It's there, you can perceive it, but Jesus is above it all. So I'm, I'm pointing at this because I feel like this is the, 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 the major theme of what God wants to point at with the heavenly Solomon here in the building of the house, the loveliness of Jesus, seen in all of the stars of his charms cast before you in the scriptures, seeing again and again. Is there not a charm in his every feature? There is a charm in his every feature. He pulls you towards himself by just seeing. Okay, you say, Eric, I'm having a hard time understanding what you're saying. All right, let me just... Let me just touch a couple of things, okay, and then we'll be done. What he is, what he's like, what he's done, what he does, and what he will do are five points that are inexhaustible, and they will cause you to see him rightly and change everything about you and pull you towards him. You say, Eric, okay, what do you mean by what's he like? Well, let me just read you a little something that I, I put together. So when you look at who Jesus is, as a matter of fact, in the, at the end of Romans chapter 11, remember there were no chapter breaks in the original writing. At the end of chapter 11, there's this beautiful statement. All things are from him, to him, and through him, to him be all the glory. And then the next verse, 12, 1 says, therefore, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifices. So you say, what makes me want to lay my body down on the altar? Well, what happened before that? A exaltation and revelation of what and who God is. So who is this who holds the wind in his fists? He sits in bliss and gives life by kisses. Who himself is riches? This is the king of glory who bends his knee to feed thee. Bleeding he freed thee and in needing he keeps thee. Who is this? Oh, he's, it's our highest joy to preach thee. And it is earth's greatest pleasure to seek thee. I wrote this down here. We need a grander vision of who God is. It will change everything about us. When we look at what the scriptures say about him, for instance, it says, all things are his servants. I think if we just believe that one text from Psalm 119, it would change everything about the way we see life. It would literally just kind of put you at rest. You know, Charles Spurgeon said, sovereignty is the pillow upon which the Christian lays his head. My God is in control, praise God. He doesn't sweat. His heart doesn't palpitate. He's outside of time. He's sitting in the, at the marriage supper of the Lamb and simultaneously in the garden with Adam. He's not worried. And, this is, and he's, he's omniscient, all-knowing. He's immutable. You can't change him. You can't make him better because that would mean he wasn't the best. And you can't make him worse because then he wouldn't be the greatest. So he is literally immutable. He has always maxed out the greatest thing there will ever be. And he doesn't need to increase because he can increase and he can decrease. We need a grander vision of God. Job says your purposes cannot be thwarted. What a statement. Could it be that he is that perfect in all of his ways? The scriptures tell us that his sovereignty rules over all. Psalm 103. The scripture tells us that he sits in the heavens and does whatever he pleases. The, the scripture tells us that 
all things, he works, he works all things after the counsel of his own will. If you just take what the Bible says about God and just say, I believe that, something changes on the inside. You know, this whole thing about feelings that bothers me so much is they try to separate feelings and faith. And they'll say things like this. I'm not faking it. I'm faithing it. I'm like, this doesn't make any sense at all. Here's the reason why. If this microphone was a grenade and you know this microphone is a grenade and you understand that grenades explode and I take that grenade and I pull the pin out and I toss it up in the air, every last one of you will be stricken with fear and run out of this place. Why? Because you know and understand and believe something. How much more can I read the things there are about God, believe them, and feel them? If I read about the Lord and I don't believe it, I'm not going to feel it. But if I believe what I read, it will make my bones tremble. As a matter of fact, we in a Christianity, we love to esteem the person who heals the sick or esteem the great eloquent speaker or esteem that person who's been very successful in Christianity in some way. But the reality is God doesn't esteem any of these things. He esteems the one who is broken and contrite and trembles at his word. What does that mean, trembles at his word? It means they believe the Bible and it affects their being. I, I read this about you. The scriptures say all things are his servants. Wow, I believe it. Praise God. That makes me happy. I feel. Why? Because I believe. Yes, it's fact first. Then after fact, there's, there's faith. And then faith produces feeling. These three F words always go together. <laughs> So he who is here now, the scripture says he walks on the wind and he rides on the, the clouds. He makes the grass grow and he feeds all the cows. That's what the scripture tells us. The scripture says that he measures the earth and he stretched out the sky. He laid the foundations of heaven on high. He tells Job that he shuts the sea in with doors and he made boundaries that the water cannot pass. That's incredible. How about this? He lifts the sun in the morning and he lights the moon at night. The scripture says he paints the clouds with his fingers and he strolls the recesses of the ocean. Can you picture Jesus walking on the bottom of the ocean where man can't even go because it's too deep? He say, Eric, I, don't, I just think this is poetry. Or is it not? <laughs> or is it actually what God wants to show to us? The scripture says that he collects hail in a storage house, and he, he has a timed release for it. The scripture says that he's the father of rain, dew, and sleet. That, what is this? The scripture tells us that he tends to gardens men will never see. The scriptures tell us that he can, listen to this one, tighten and loosen the constellations. I don't know if you know about constellations. They don't move. They've been the same forever. But God could go like this. Let's make it a little tighter. Let's make it a little looser. He stops the sun for Joshua. This is incredible. He, he didn't just, we think about this sometimes, and it doesn't make any real sense. He split the ocean to let two million people walk through. This is, this is who we're talking about here. The scripture says that, listen to this, he's so intimately and personally involved with this world, with you. The scripture says that he guides the bear with her cubs. The scripture says that he tells the lion to wait in the thicket in order to be able to get his prey. What is that? He said he's like an all-pervading consciousness involved in everything that's going on. The scripture says here that he puts wisdom into the mind of men and he puts understanding in their hearts. You only understand anything because God allowed that. You only know anything because God turned the light on for you. And all the while a numberless multitudes surround him, worshiping him day and night. Praise God, there's a man on the throne and every eye is looking at him. 
So we see these things and we say that we see he that flung the stars, those heavenly flames, he counts their numbers and knows their names. He gives flight to the eagle. He tightens the clam. He puts your tears in a bottle. He writes your name on his hand. This is what we see Jesus to be. You say, Eric, what are you trying to say? I'm trying to say, if you just look at what he is, you'll feel something, it'll move you, and you will fall in love. Let's just move on past what he is, what he's like. He tells Moses, I'm the Lord, gracious and compassionate. I'm slow to anger. I'm rich in love. I will not let the guilty go unpunished. He is symmetry itself. He's perfect love and judgment simultaneously. He will give to all who fear him compassion. And those who rebel against him, he will cast them away forever to keep that cancer out of the world that he will rectify and bring into beauty. He's perfection. When he says to Moses, he says, I'm the Lord gracious. You know what gracious means? Gracious means he's for you apart from you. (gasps) That makes me really happy. And I'm so glad it's that way. The Lord is gracious. He's for you apart from you. In other words, I'm telling you, you may think you're doing really good. You're not. You're not doing real good. Eric, but I haven't done a certain sin in a long time. You, you're really not doing good. I'll just save you the suspense. But why can you say that? Because Jesus, that's why. <laughs> Jesus walked the earth. And if you are put next to him, it doesn't matter how great you are. You fast for the rest of your life and die that way. You still will pale in comparison to the perfections of Jesus is. So let me just save you the suspense. You're not doing real good. So just throw yourself completely upon the perfect man, Christ Jesus. You know, some people, they they don't go into the closet because they've built up a case against themselves for going before God. And they think of all these things they've done wrong. But the reality is, is that's self-consciousness and self-exaltation. You can't come to God because you're good. And you'll never be good enough to be able to approach God. Only Jesus is the reason why you can come before the throne of grace and receive grace in time of need. Only Jesus. Listen, if, if... You could see the perfection necessary to approach God. You'd be crushed under its weight. Or you'll degrade the standard that it takes to come before God. You'll fulfill it and then be proud. And neither one of these things enter into fellowship with God. It is only Jesus. The Lord is gracious. Wait, and compassionate. Let me just touch on this one. Compassion, compassionate means this. It means he's he's drawn to your weakness. Compassion means your weakness attracts him to you. My God, what kind of a, do you remember the stuff we just said about him? All those magnificent, glorious things about his sovereign rule and glorious power and his omniscience, omnipotence, all that. That person is drawn to your weakness. The scripture says he remembers you in your lowest state because his mercy endures forever. There is, if he marked iniquity, who could stand? But there's forgiveness with him that he may be feared. Wow. He's compassionate and he's for you. He is for you. One of my friends likes to say it like this. The things about you that make you cringe most make him hug tightest. (laughs) He's pulled into you by your weaknesses. All you have to do, listen, don't be afraid. And don't be ashamed because of all the warts you see on your soul. Expose them to his view and they shall be healed. That's the key. So you see what he is, what he's like. When he tells Moses he's this, Moses falls on his face. I mean, there's, I just, there's so many things I want to just go with, but Moses falls down in worship because of a revelation of God. I want to submit something to you. John Piper wrote this. To the degree your praise is without feeling, you diminish the one that you praise. To the degree your praise is without feeling, you diminish the thing that you praise. And you say, well, I don't understand. I mean, sometimes you know I praise, though I don't feel it. Listen, C.S. Lewis says this. Praise is the commencement of enjoyment. He says, true praise is the commencement of enjoyment. 
Now he goes on to describe it like if you have a, a cup of a tea and you take that tea and you drink it down and it, the flavors burst on your tongue, the warmth goes into your chest and you're like, oh, this is good tea. You just praised what you have enjoyed. You enjoy something into, whoa, that's good. That's what real praise is. That's what the psalmist does. In other words, I turn my eyes to Calvary. And I see, and I see what love looks like. And I say, blessed be the name of the Lord. I look upon what he's shown me about himself right here in his self-disclosure. And I say, wow, I believe that. Praise you, God. Praise you, God. So Moses worships because of something that happens to him. I'm telling you, worship is not something you do as much as it is something that happens to you when you see him rightly. I'm, I'm having a hard time feeling my praise. Just think about the person you're talking about and praise will happen. Recall him. Okay, so we have what, what he is. We have what he's like. Now we have what he's done. He dropped down out of light unapproachable and entered into the restrictions and frailties of a human body. That's incredible. As a matter of fact, it's too too much for the human mind to wrap your brain around. You need the Holy Spirit to make it real to you. Because that's how low of a condescension we have. We have him who is the highest heights swooping down to become a poor man on the planet and then get crucified naked on a tree, die, and then go down into the depths of hell. Can you believe this? He goes into the lowest place from the highest place. That's a condescension that will never be matched. And that's what true love looks like. That one that we talked about did that thing we know. He has shown you his glory by what he is, what he's like, and what he's done. And not only what he's done, but what does he continually do to you, do for you? The scripture says 26 times in in Psalm 136, the Lord, the, the loving kindness of the Lord endures forever. 26 times. In other words, loving kindness is this. It is when his heart is so overflowing with love, he acts in your benefit with his hand. That's loving kindness. His kindness is actions for your benefit that he performs from the overflow of love that he has for you in his heart. And the scripture says that that overflowing love that causes his hand to act favorably in your life never ends. His loving kindness endures forever. And if you don't believe me, just read all 26 of them in 136. And the reality is this, you remember what God has done for you. Do you remember what God has done for you? You know, in Song of Solomon chapter four, she falls asleep. She's numb to him. He starts calling out to her. She doesn't listen. She's, she's content just to be clean and not go and, be, go and be with the Lord. And you know what he does, the bridegroom, the heavenly Solomon? He puts his hand through the door and it says when she saw his hand, her feelings were aroused for him and she got up and sought the Lord. What what does that mean? In other words, his hand, if it is the heavenly Solomon, then that hand has a hole in it. And when he shows you his hand, do you remember? Do you remember that I died for you? Oh, I just, I don't, I feel numb. Look at the cross. I feel numb. Well, he wasn't numb on the cross. I, I feel like, I feel like my, my heart is just kind of dry. Let him strike the fount of your heart and cause streams of love to flow by the root of the cross. Maybe your heart is like that and you need that Moses to come and strike that rock of your heart so that the, the fountains of love will flow again. How? Look at his hand. You remember when he healed you? You remember when he plucked you up? with his hand? You remember when he put his finger on you and cast that devil out of you? Do you remember when his, his hands bled on that tree? Praise God. That causes love. We love him because it's response. You can't make yourself love the Lord. You can only look at his love and love will happen to you. Charles Spurgeon said you can't, he, can't, he said you can't chisel an ice pick into a river. 
He says, but if you put it into the beams of the sun, it will turn into streams. And so it is with us. Sometimes we try to make ourselves love Jesus. And the reality is you can't chisel an iceberg into a river, but if you just bask in his beams, you'll turn into streams. Taking time to be in his, in his presence. So then you have all this, you have who he is, you have what he's like, you have what he's done, you have what he's doing in your life. And then finally, he shall split the sky and he will return. And he will put his feet on the Mount of Olives. And the scripture says he, this, the, the earth will open from sea to sea. Wow. He, once he steps down, the, the earth is going to respond and go from sea to sea. That's incredible. The scripture says that he will reign from Jerusalem over the entire world. Listen to how incredibly powerful he is. When the Antichrist has risen up and has his whole thing, God, Christ, slays him with the breath of his mouth. There's no contest here. The kingdom of of God is not under siege. And can I say something that might be a little controversial, but if you just take a look at the scriptures, you'll see that this is true. Even Satan is serving purposes of God. You say, Eric, I don't think that's true. Just, just, just take a look for a minute at what the scriptures show you about him. Have you considered my servant Job? The scripture says in Revelation uh, that the, the devil, Satan, was given power to overcome the saints. Where did that power come from? In other words, God is not worried about anything. Everything's arranged and pre-planned and already finished. Done. The only thing a man has to do is be humble enough to recognize who God is, throw himself on his mercy and his grace, and God will pick him up and make him a part of his plan. Praise God. Grace, uh, I'll close with this, and if if somebody could come up, that'd be great. Uh, Maybe just hold like a D chord, whoever's going to come up there. Maybe just hold like a D chord, and then, then we're done. Is this okay? Yes. Um, a, a, an old man came up to me the other day. How many of you love old saints that have served the Lord for many years? I love hanging out with old men of God. This guy was, I think he's in his 90s. He was a pastor for many years. He's retired now, and he just goes to the church and prays. That's what he does. He comes up to me after I was done preaching recently and he looks at me and then he goes, son, when I was your age, I used to long to be with Jesus like you. I used to preach Christ like you. I love just to spend time in God's presence and drink. He goes, I I love that. He goes, you want to know something? I said, yeah. He goes, that's called grace. Then he goes, son, you're nothing special. He says, grace is special. And I said, it was like cool water over my head. Broke off any kind of confidence I had in myself. And I can throw myself completely upon God's grace. In other words, listen, let me just, let me apply it to you personally. Your love for the word of God is because of grace. Your love to worship, that's grace. You're nothing special. Grace is special. And you just look to Christ and Christ has grace flowing from his lips. As the scripture says, grace is emptied on the lips of Jesus. The scripture says, in other words, all the grace you're ever going to find has been empty. God has emptied the totality of grace upon the lips of Jesus. So it's like the old Puritans used to say, prayer is the means of grace. You just throw yourself on his mercy and you receive grace. Paul says, I worked more than all of them. Not me, but the grace of God on the inside of me. See, grace is not just unmerited favor, though I love unmerited favor. It's more than that. It's divine enablement. It's supernatural empowerment. It's new desires. It's Christ on the inside. I need grace. Sometimes I wake up in the morning, I'll feel so cold, dead, dry, and empty, and frail, and broken, and I'll say, grace, Lord. Grace, Lord. And as I cast my eyes to Calvary Street, he pours his grace all over me. And I find that I don't, I can't even take credit for anything. All I was was a beggar. 
and I can say, oh Lord, I'm good at begging and you're good at giving. We're a great match. See that everything can only marry a nothing. If you want to marry the everything, you can only be a nothing to marry him. Because if you're something, he's not everything. I've been reading the diary, the diary of Andrew Bonner. And he said that he looked at his dear friends, Robert Murray McShane and Alexander Somerville, dear friends of his, and they're getting opportunities to preach all over. And God is visiting them with many revivals for a few weeks at a time. And he says, there he is. He doesn't have very many preaching engagements. And he's sitting there and he writes down in his journal, never meant to be published just for him personally. He writes down all these things that he's seen happen in his brothers. And then he thinks of himself. And then he says, I found that my unhappiness rose from my unwillingness to be nothing. I found that my unhappiness rose from my unwillingness to be nothing. But if you want to marry Jesus, the everything, you got to be a nothing. And to quote good old Martin Luther, if God created the world out of nothing, if he's going to create anything out of me, I must first become nothing. I give up, Lord. I can't even, I can't even love you without you. I can't even watch you without you. I don't stand a chance, Lord. I throw myself at your mercy. I surrender, but I don't even trust my surrender. I need you so bad, Lord. I'm empty and I'm broken. Unless you come feed me, I die of hunger and thirst. I need you, Jesus. I need you. I need you. I need you. This is the key. We never graduate from dependency. Man, the lower you go, the quicker you'll be filled. John Bradford, when he would pray, he would look into his heart for all the parts of himself that showed him he needed Jesus. And he ran to those things because they brought him low. What what does that mean? It means just sit in a room for a little while and think upon all those things that you know no one else knows that go on on the inside of your heart. And you think those things are evidence of, of distance from God. No, you're on the brink because you're needy. I told the guy recently, I said, when you're, because he was talking about his wife and him and and going through different trials and things. I said, listen, when you and your wife are in the middle of something and you feel that resistance from bowing, from yielding, from just valuing her enough to say, I This isn't worth fighting about. When you get that strength to hold on to your own will, I said, you think you're farthest from God there because you feel that death. I said, no, 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 you're so close because God resurrects the dead things. So if you can see that anger that rises up on the inside as the brink of resurrection, if you'll just die, then God can come in and resurrect you. It works in every area of life. You feel that temptation, it pulls at you, and then you're at that point where you're just like at the, you think you're good. I'm so far from God. No, 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 you're on the brink because he's right after death. So just let it go. Just let go and say, God, I give up to you. And then the Lord comes in like a mighty river and he picks you up and he takes you into his hands.